At the beginning of the praise and worship, I experienced the perfect lead-in to my sermon. Now, no one else probably got to experience it, but I did. You know, my, my opening line was going to be, it's always interesting to see how people react so differently to the same thing. So could any of you hear me still singing with the microphone turned on? Now, you all went, praise the Lord, our pastor wants to worship, didn't you? I'm going to go with that. The worship team, however, who has monitors in their ears, they didn't get that excited. They're going like this, and I don't see them, so they're going to Nick like this. Nick is trying to cut me off. I can't believe that. Good thing I'm secure that I cannot sing, but I make a joyful noise really, really well. We do that. It's so often we, we see in different situations or events or conversations, um, people react so differently. You know, you might ask somebody about a restaurant. Did you go there? And they go, oh, it's just to die for. It's the best food you'll ever eat. And then I talk to somebody else and Mindy says, don't ever go there. It was horrible. We go to a movie. It's the greatest movie or it really stinks. Certain situations happen, you know, something takes place in the church or, or somebody might come up to me and say, that was awesome. That was just awesome. The next person comes and says, boy, oh boy, did that stink. That was about as dead as dead gets. How can that happen? How can there be such different reactions? Well, we all look at situations, we all look at events, and we interpret, to interpret them according to our past experiences, according to the way we think about things, uh, things that We've heard said before, all of a sudden somebody says it and we hear what we heard way back here. And we respond so differently. It depends on our culture. It depends on our, our, our faith. It depends on the values that we have as individuals. All of these things determine how we respond to a situation or an event. This line isn't mine. It says, we don't see things as they are, but we see things as we are. I like that line. I thought about that a lot this week. We don't see things as they really are. We things see the things as we are. We're going to look at a story, and the title of my message, if it's not up there yet, is How Do We Respond to the Messiah? How do we respond to the Messiah? We're going to look at a part of what we call the Christmas story in Matthew, and we're going to look at uh, an event that took place and there's at least four different groups of people involved in this event, and they all respond so differently. It's in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I know Alan touched on the, the Magi. When I pronounce it Magi, that's what all the books say. I always have pronounced it for 62 years, Magi. The Magi, or the wise men. And I know Alan touched on them last week and a few things that he pointed out that we think are maybe true. Uh, but we, the Bible doesn't tell us all of that. But we're going to look at this. So I want to read uh, Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, 
For this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time that the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we look into this section of Scripture, you reveal things to us by your Holy Spirit. God, that we would see ourselves somewhere in this story. And God, that it would change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. What do we know for sure about the Magi? Alan touched on this. We don't know as much about the Magi as we might think we do. All those Christmas videos and all those Christian movies uh, lead us to believe some things that just aren't in the Scriptures, as Alan said last week. We do, not know, we do know that they were called Magi, M-A-G-I, which simply means wise men. Now, we can surmise from that, but the Bible doesn't tell us this exactly, but we can surmise from historical records uh, of the day that the Magi were very, very well-educated. They were educated in a whole number of things. As a matter of fact, uh, the history tells us in Babylon that the king could not even be appointed king or become king unless the Magi said yea. That the king was also educated and trained in what they knew. They were trained in agriculture. They were trained in mathematics. They were trained in science. They were trained in astrology. They were trained in history. They were trained in medicine. And they were also trained in the occult. Broad spectrum of education, training, knowledge. Thus, the wise men. They were primarily known, according to Josephus, an ancient historian, the wise men were primarily primarily known as a um, priestly political group of men in the Parthians group or tribe of people who lived in the east. So Magi were not unheard of at all. But we don't know all of that from Scripture. We only know a little bit, and we can surmise. We do know that they followed a star, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. And we do know when they found Jesus, they came and they bowed down and they worshipped him. They worshipped him and they called him the king of the Jews. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us this, and I often think about this when I, when I wonder about the Magi. What was it about the Magi, first of all, that even drew their attention? A star, okay. What made them understand that that star was significant? Why did they come and travel such a great distance? Why did they do all the things that they did? Why did they bow down and worship? And it doesn't tell us exactly why. But there are things, things from Scripture that we can again surmise. And, and again, I, I make it clear, the Bible doesn't tell us specifically. But we do know years before, 
when the Babylonian Empire had came and taken much of Judah, Israel, captive, the Jewish people captive, most of us might remember the story about Daniel. And then we might know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We might know the story about Daniel and the lion's den. We know all these things. And they were taken to the Babylonian Empire. And you might recall that the king at that time, Nebuchadnezzar, had a dream. And he called upon all the wise men, the magi. He called upon all of them and says, this dream's troubling me. I need an interpretation of my dream. And the magi could not come up with an interpretation of the dream. But Daniel, a little Jewish boy who wasn't quite so little anymore, he'd been there for a while, he came with the interpretation of the dream. And then if you remember in your Old Testament, it talks about when he did this, King Nebuchadnezzar made him the lead or the head over all the wise men. So he would have had great influence with the wise men. And he even earned a little bit greater influence in all likelihood because if you remember the story, when Nebuchadnezzar got the dream interpreted from Daniel, after all his wise men couldn't interpret it, he said, kill them all. Kill all the wise men. What good are they, basically, is what he was saying. And Daniel came to their defense. Daniel is the one that rescued them from King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel said, oh, wise king, don't kill the wise men. So the Magi very well could have been greatly influenced by this Jewish man named Daniel, uh, and they probably had great favor with them at that time. And we could maybe even think that there would have been a Jewish messianic influence amongst the Magi even years later. The Bible does not specifically tell us that. But there was something, there was some reason why the Magi were so committed, why they recognized the star and knew that it had significant meaning. There are Old Testament scriptures that talk about the star and following the star to what we now would know to the Messiah. So the Bible doesn't tell us all of that specifically, but it tells us they did come to worship the king of the Jews. It tells us they brought at least three gifts. And, of course, we all assume there were only three gifts because there's only three mentioned. Therefore, we assume there were three magi. But we don't know how many gifts there really were, and we have no idea how many magi there may have been. There could have been more. And they certainly, historically, there's no way they would have traveled alone from wherever it was they came from. We know they came from the east. And you can read all kinds of things about where that was, how far away it was, but we really don't know. Many figure they came from somewhere in Saudi Arabia because that's where frankincense and myrrh was primarily produced from. But just because it was produced in Saudi Arabia, what we call Saudi Arabia, doesn't mean they were from Arabia. All we know is they were from the east. Something they came so far from the east, they came from China. Some think they were relatives of one of Noah's sons. But we don't know all those things. But we can put together a little bit of a picture from what we do know. And it's interesting. How many of you read <coughs> that story and it says they saw the star in the east and if you picture yourself there with them all turning to the east and looking for a star in the east? How many of you, how many of you think that way? Come on. I did. Well, how many of you knew if they came from the east, 
following the star, which direction were they going? To the west. You read that thing and all of a sudden you realize, when we were in the east, we saw this star. There's no way the star was in the east. It's impossible. But we read things that way sometimes and we just jump to conclusions without really thinking it through. And then, you know, some people say <coughs> the, the word wise men can mean men or women. Historically, if there would have been 99 women and one man, they would still use the same word in the, the Greek or Aramaic. But I know there was not women there because they got lost. But there could have been women there because they stopped to ask directions. But we don't know. All we know is there was Magi. That's all we know. I know some people say there, there was no women there because the gifts would have been way more practical. You know, things like diapers. And, but we don't know. But the Bible doesn't tell us. All it tells us is there were Magi. They followed a star. They came from the east. And they brought gifts. And we do know that three of those gifts were gold frankincense, and myrrh. And we, knew, we know that they stopped in Jerusalem. Why did they stop in Jerusalem? The star must have quit shining, right? Because we read after they stopped in Jerusalem, they stopped to ask, hey, where is the king of the Jews? And then when they did finally leave, then they saw the star and they got exceedingly great joy because there was the star again. You ever wonder, why did they, why did they God do that? I mean, if they'd followed the star from however far they came from the east, some may say up to a 1,000 miles, but we know it was quite a distance. Why did the star stop shining? Well, again, we're not told specifically, but we do know they had to stop and ask. And why Jerusalem? I think it's just another example of God's goodness, his grace, and his mercy. He gave Jerusalem another chance. Another chance to, to recognize that the Messiah was coming and was there and was born. He gave him another chance. And then we know for sure that they were warned by God in a dream. Sometime. I even asked myself, I wonder when they had that dream. You know, if you look at the geography of, of Jerusalem and Bethlehem, they're about six miles apart. That's it. I mean, you could get up early in the morning and walk to Bethlehem and, 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 and see the child in the house and go back and be back in Jerusalem if you were going to go back that way. So I don't know when they had the dream, but we do know they had a dream. And it said, don't go back through Jerusalem. Go back to your country in another direction. So I'm going to look at the Magi first and a little more um, with some observations, more than exactly what we see in Scripture. But I think there's some things we can maybe glean from it, even though this took place a long, long time ago and none of us were there. But the Magi, how often do you think or hear people say, you know what, I, I just got to go somewhere. I got to do something. I got to go hear God. I don't even know if I'm doing the right job. I don't know if I'm supposed to be doing this. I, I don't know. I got to go hear God. Well, I think one thing we can see here is God spoke to the Magi while they were doing what they do. Studying their astrology, they saw a star. My goodness, God spoke to them through a star. God can speak to us anywhere, and he can speak to us through anything or anybody, right where we're at. 
he spoke to the Magi through a star. Obviously, when they were doing some of their studies of the astrology. And then notice, they, they responded as committed seekers. They responded to this star. We don't know their background for sure, and we don't know how far it was or how long it took, but traveling in those days wasn't easy. And most historians would tell you there is no way there was only three people. They would have had their servants. Typically, when someone was going to go on a long distance like that, they would take a caravan. There would be many, many people. There could have been 100 or 200 or 300 people. We don't know those things for sure. But we can be almost positive they did not travel alone. So when they came into Jerusalem, you can imagine, here comes this caravan arriving in Jerusalem with these magi, probably looking pretty important, and then asking of all things, where is that one that is born king of the Jews? But they responded. Boy, today I wonder how, how I, know, I know we all do this. We forget how slow we were to respond before we got saved. But we look at people or talk to people and we wonder, how in the world can you not get this? How in the world can you not respond? You know, we have the whole Bible. We have the advantage of looking back with almost 2,000 years of hindsight and we still say, how, how can people not respond? Well, if you look through this story, you're going to see how different groups respond. But this first group, the Magi, they responded. They responded as seekers. They, they went, and they were going to find the king of the Jews. The distance barrier, it didn't matter. In all likelihood, there was a great cultural barrier. It didn't matter. There very easily could have been a language barrier. It didn't matter. It was going to cost them a lot of money. It didn't matter. They go and they run into an indifferent group of people and it didn't matter. They run into a hostile king and it didn't matter. The star even quit shining for a short period of time, but that didn't matter. They went right into the city and asked questions. When we are seekers, truly seekers, there's a reason the Word of God says, if you seek me with all all your heart, I guarantee you will find me. They were seeking. And sometimes we are so poor at being seekers. The first barrier we run into, we give up. We quit. And God's will and destiny for us may be just beyond that barrier. I mean, these people, oh, the star quit shining. Now what do we do? Well, let's turn around and trek back home. No way were they going to do that. They were going to seek until they found the king of the Jews. And when they found him, what did they do? They fell prostrate to the ground and worshipped him. And worshipped him. They bowed down and worshipped him. You know, we are called to be worshippers of God. That's why God rescued us, redeemed us, saved us, that we might become worshippers of God. And I don't want to take this too far, but it's interesting. The affirmation of their worship was the giving of gifts and generosity. It's easy to bow down and do whatever it takes to, to, to look like you're worshiping. But they gave gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and we don't know even what else they may have given. They gave costly gifts. It was a validation, so to speak, of their worship. 
in our culture today, it's so easy. You know, if, if there is a besetting sin in the church in America, I think it's fear and it's fear of giving something that we have. Fear of giving finances, fear of being generous. And I'm talking to a generous group of people. But as a culture, as a group of people, it, it, you know, the, the church, all the wonderful statistics they have say less than 3% of evangelicals tithe, meaning less than 3% truly believe that God owns it all. And he's letting us keep 90% if we choose to. It was an affirmation, a validation of their worship as they gave these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Again, <clears throat> we don't know this for sure because the Bible doesn't specifically tell it, but it's pretty well understood that those gifts had significance beyond the gold, beyond the frankincense, beyond the myrrh. There was symbolism to it. Just briefly, without spending much time on it, the gold signifies majesty or kingship. Pretty common. The majesty and kingship. It's a picture for us of Jesus as king. The frankincense. Frankincense was part of what the, the, uh, the spices and the incense that was burned in the worship at the temple. Frankincense, worship, the divinity of Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus is king. Jesus is God. And then there is the myrrh. And the myrrh signifying the suffering and the death or the humanity of Jesus. Jesus is man. The symbolism there Again, the Bible doesn't lay it out just like that. But the significance is hard to overlook of those three particular gifts. The Magi. I hope we respond like Magi. That's a great group to respond like. There is a second group I want to just touch on, and that's the scribes and the chief priests of all the people. That's how they're described. The scribes and chief priests of all the people. These are the men who would have been the experts in the Old Testament. They would have been the ones. They were the religious teachers. Think about that. They were the ones that had been teaching about the coming Messiah for centuries. Centuries. They had the word of God. When when the king asked them, hey, where is he going to be born? It doesn't say, well, they gathered together. They got out all the scrolls. They started searching like crazy. They looked to the index and the reference to find out where the prophet Micah was. And then they found it. It just says they asked and they told him because they knew. They knew what the prophecy said in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, So without hesitation, it appears the king asked. They said, hey, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's where he's going to be born. Six miles away from where we're standing in Jerusalem is where the Messiah is going to be born. And these men have traveled, these wise men, these magi have traveled all this distance following a supernatural star looking to come and worship the king of the Jews. And you notice not a single bit of evidence shows us that even one of those scribes or chief priests went with them just to check it out. Not one. They've been teaching about it for hundreds of years. 
They knew the scripture. They knew the prophecies. And here it comes, and it's six miles away, and they did nothing. You know, sometimes knowledge, and knowledge is good, but sometimes it can be good and yet worthless. Even good knowledge, even religious knowledge, even biblical knowledge can make us totally indifferent. We can be so hung up on what we know that we, we become useless. They knew. They had the truth. They had the word of God. They had the word of the prophets. And they did nothing. There even could have been nothing more than just cultural pride. Who in the heck are these guys? So they're wise men. Big deal. So they call themselves magi. Big deal. Look at us. We're the scribes. We're the Pharisees. We dress kind of neat. We know the word. Everybody gives us deference. Everybody looks at us as impressed. Who are these guys? Boy, we can sometimes even fall into that trap. You ever been so smart about something that someone told you something that wasn't, didn't line up with your intellect? And you just blew it off, and then a little while later, go, oh, I should have listened to my wife. <laughs> we, <laughs> it is. <laughs> it can happen, and it can certainly happen to the religious leaders of that day and the religious leaders of this day. Culturally arrogant. This is the the opportunity that they've been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years, teaching about for hundreds and hundreds of years, and someone comes and they tell them, they tell them he's going to be born six miles from here. But not one goes to check it out. Total indifference. There are so many people today are totally indifferent to the Word of God. And again, like I said before, we have the hindsight of looking back from, from 2,000 years nearly, and yet people still are indifferent. People who sit in churches every Sunday are indifferent. People that know about the Word of God, know it intellectually, are indifferent. Then there's a third person in this group, and there's Herod. How many of you wish you, wish you were Herod? If you were in the story, would you want to be Herod? The reality is there's a little bit of Herod potential in every single one of us. That's a scary thought. Herod, he was a paranoid, treacherous king who wanted to hang on to his power, his position, his prestige, his authority, no matter what. And he was evil to the core. If you know anything about Herod, if you've read about Herod, you'd say, I don't want to be like Herod. He murdered his wife because he felt threatened, murdered his wife's brother, murdered his wife's dad. He murdered hundreds of his own military because he was afraid they were going to overthrow him. He murdered a whole bunch of his friends. And then just to top it off, he was a little bit afraid that some of his sons might try to take over. He killed some of them too. This is Herod. And Herod is the one that they go to when they come to Jerusalem. Herod's response was all to protect who he was. He was not about to bow down to anything or anybody. And he was going to make sure nobody challenged his position or authority. Nobody challenged who he was. Ultimately, we know in the Christmas story, if you read just a little bit further in Matthew chapter 2, he has somehow or other ascertained from the Magi, 
that enough information anyway that he said go into Bethlehem and the surrounding region of Bethlehem and kill every single male under two years of age. Why? To protect his power, his position, his wealth, his authority. He was not going to look to anyone as Lord other than Herod. Now I say that we all have the potential to have a little bit of Herod in us. We want to sometimes hang on to power, position, material goods, prestige, whatever it is. And we don't want to surrender our life to anybody. I'm in control. Hopefully there's no Herods in the room. The last group I want to mention is the people of Jerusalem. All it says about the people of Jerusalem, it says Herod was troubled by what was going on and all the people of Jerusalem were troubled like Herod. I sometimes in my mind want to give them a break and say, well, they were probably afraid of this evil king. But the indication is they were, the way it's put together and structured, they were troubled by the news also. And when you think about it, just th- this is God's chosen people. These are the sons and daughters of Abraham. This is the group of people that the promises of the Old Testament were made to. This is the group of people that has been crying out for the Messiah for hundreds and hundreds of years. This is the group of people who are under Roman rule and they, they hate it and they've been looking and they've even, they've even embraced some false messiahs historically. We know that. And this is the group of people that when the Magi come into town asking, where has the king of the Jews been born? They did nothing either. They didn't do anything. I mean, the scribes and the chief priest didn't do anything. And we see not one shred of evidence that a single citizen of Jerusalem did anything. Wouldn't you think there'd have been somebody curious and at least said, let's follow that caravan. It's only six miles. But they didn't. And we don't know, as Alan pointed out last week, we don't know, we do know they didn't go to the stable, by the way. Alan hit on that last week. Um, We know that says they went to the house where they lived. But remember the story of the shepherds when they went and they went to the stable and then when they left and it says they spread the news everywhere? Probably some of that everywhere would have been six miles away in Jerusalem. So there was probably rumors and news about this event that had taken place. And yet, when they come to looking for the king of the Jews, they did nothing. Indifference, maybe. Uh, Pride, maybe. Um, What we got's good enough. I don't want to give up what we got. What if this new king wants us to, to sacrifice something? We don't know for sure, but we do know they were troubled. They didn't want to give up and go find the king of the Jews. Same event, same message, number of different people in the story. And look how differently they all responded. One of the things that really liked in the story was the idea of the star. That God, God spoke somehow to these magi with a star. Which tells me he can speak to us through anything. But it also tells me that there's probably been a star in every single one of our lives. 
Who is the star in your life? Who is the star in your life that spoke to you about God, spoke to you about Jesus? Who is that star in your life? And I don't mean a famous person, obviously. Who is the one who acted like the star Bethlehem in your life to point you, to show you the way, to direct you to the King of Kings? Most all of us had one. I can think of more than one in my own life that was that star. And then I think about this. Who am I being the star? Whose life am I being the star in? Who in my realm, who in that, my sphere of influence, who even in my contacts am, is God calling me to be the star to lead them, to point them to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? We're all called. We're all called to be that kind of star in somebody's life. We're all called to be worshipers. The Magi gave us an example, but we're all called to worship God. We're called to give him thanks in all things. We're to worship him and all that we see, all of his creation around us, around us is acknowledging that there is a God. There's nothing wrong with admiring our creation as long as we remember who our creator is and who created it all. We're called to be worshipers. We're called to bring our gifts as a form of validation of our worship. It's so easy to say, I trust God for everything as we're holding on to our checkbook or wallet as tightly as we can. It's all his. He just asks us to give back to him some of what is already his for a number of reasons, to continue to carry on the work of the ministry, but more than anything, I think, just to allow us to check our heart and see how generous we really are, to see do we really believe that it's all his. I've heard from a few people one of them was Nieder's uh, dad, Bob, had a funeral this week. Always said, you just can't outgive God. And we say those words, but do we believe it? Part of our worship, giving is worship. Called to be worshipers. And as I said, we all have the potential to be a little bit like the scribes and Pharisees. We all have the potential to act like the people of Jerusalem. And as scary as it is, we all have the potential to have an attitude of Herod, even though we do not, hopefully, follow his example in our behavior. But we can have that desire to hang on to position or power or wealth, whatever it is, that we just want to hang out. We want to be in control. Man, I'm a control freak. Somebody told me that once. I'm going to rebuke you when you tell me that. But we like control. And part of knowing and unbelieving and proclaiming that there is a king of kings and lord of lords means i got to let go. We all have the potential to want to hang on. So how have you responded to the Messiah? How do we respond to the Messiah? You know, it's easy to, to be a little bit hard on some of the characters in the Bible sometimes, isn't it? Like, what's wrong with those people? How could they think that way? Well, the reality is, as I said earlier, we, we've got 2,000 years of hindsight, and, and we have people, I used to react that way. I was indifferent. I had some religion. My mom and dad took me to church and Sunday school. I had enough religion to think I was in a great place. 
shows you how wrong a person can be. But we all have that potential. Wise men, seekers, worshipers. The indifference of the scribes, Pharisees, the people of Jerusalem, or that attitude of hanging on to self and control of Herod. As you read the Christmas story, I encourage you to do more than read it. Meditate on it. What does the Lord want to show us in this wonderful story about the birth of a king? And you may get the opportunity to share some of what you meditate on with someone who asked you a question or someone who's talking about Christmas. It's the season to share. And really, if you've had the opportunity to be that star in someone else's life, to point them to Jesus, you already know there's nothing better. It's the greatest feeling there ever could be, especially if it happens to be one of your family members. So I encourage you, look for opportunities to be the star in someone's life. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we do look to you as our, our guide, our, our teacher. Father, you could tell us in, the, in your word that we don't even know what the words to say sometimes. You will give us the words as we trust in your Holy Spirit. God, I know we're going to have opportunities the next week with friends and family, relatives, as we gather together to celebrate Christmas. God, I pray that in our hearts it's a celebration of the life of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, God in the flesh, and not just about family and fellowship, food, gifts. As good as all those things are, help us to keep our eyes on you. And give us the words to share with others, the opportunities to tell the story about Jesus in a way that's significant, the way that you can use. Help us to be those who would plant seeds, maybe water seeds, and maybe some of us will get to harvest. But Lord, I just praise you and thank you that you have given each one of us the Holy Spirit to live, dwell, guide each one of us. I pray, God, that we are sensitive. Lord, I pray now, too, as we go our separate ways, watch over us in this cold weather. Father, we pray for uh, all our cars to start. In Jesus' name, amen.